Welcome to the Sex Ed with DB podcast, brought to you by O School. Sex Ed with DB is an intersectional, feminist, Bay Area-based podcast for folks who want to hear real stories from underrepresented voices as we try to revolutionize the way we talk about sex. Just talk about sex every single day. I used to hump the shit out of everything. I think everybody does. I'm like, if you'd like me to start procreating tough shit, because I'm not gonna. You can't have education, you can't have contraception, but you can't have an abortion. We're still on the, the shit end of, of the stick for a lot of medical interventions that would make our bodies function better. And now it's all queer and all messy and all bodies and really great and fantastic. Everyone gets a vibrator! I'm DB, aka Danielle Bezalel, and I'll be your host. Have you ever had pain during sex? I know I for sure have. If not, that's great. If you have, that's okay too. This episode is all about pain, dysfunction, and going through menopause, which doesn't have to be as scary as Samantha from Sex and the City makes it seem, by the way. So let's get on with the show. Do you have sexual FOMO? Do you find yourself scrolling through Instagram imagining all the ways everyone but you is having toe-curling, mind-blowing, hot AF sex? If so, O-School's got your back. Whether you want to study up on going down, learn how to talk dirty, try new positions, or just communicate your needs better in bed, our pleasure professionals will get you well on your way to having shamelessly better sex. Check out www.o.school to find out when the next live stream begins. Hey, Rachel, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being on Sex Ed with DB season two. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you identify and your name, obviously, and why you chose to go into pelvic health? Sure. So I'm Rachel Gelman, and I am a proud Bay Area native. Um, I went up and studied biology at University of Washington and then received my doctorate in physical therapy at Samuel Merritt University in Oakland. Um, and pretty early on in PT school, I discovered pelvic health and just fell in love with it. And I was lucky enough to go do my internship in pelvic health um, at a private practice, Sullivan Physical Therapy in Austin, Texas. And now I'm the branch director at um, the Pelvic Health and Rehab Center in San Francisco. And we have six clinics and we focus primarily on pelvic pain, pelvic floor dysfunction. And yeah, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and how do you see pain in your day-to-day job with your patients? Huh. What does that look like? Um, that's pretty much majority of my day and majority of what we see. And I kind of see pain or pelvic pain as kind of this umbrella for all sorts of things. It could be urinary dysfunction, not necessarily pain with urination, but urgency, frequency, feeling like um, it's hard to start your stream, um, bowel dysfunction, difficulty with bowel movements, um, sexual dysfunction, obviously, which is why I'm here. <laughs> um, but then also just pain. Anything between the rib cage and the knees will treat. And do, would you find that there are more kinds of like, like people with certain body parts, like people with penises have like more pain than people with vulvas and vaginas, or is it more so a mix? It's definitely a mix. I get asked that a lot. Um, patients are always like, oh, you probably don't see that many men. And in fact, I'd say probably it's like 50-50. Um, my patients are, you know, half and half, men and women. It definitely fluctuates. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, I wouldn't say one, there's one more than another. I mean, I definitely see a lot of women post-pregnancy and stuff like that. So that definitely maybe makes it a little more female focused, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely 50, 50, I'd say. Gotcha. That's good to know. Yeah. Myth busting. (laughs) Um, What are different kinds of pain that a person can experience and like what causes these, these differences? So I've heard, you know, dyspareunia, that term recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like, can you tell us like kind of the main things that like maybe people who have had pain, like don't know what to put, how to put a name to that pain? Um, like the disorders or the mm-hmm. conditions? Yeah. So dyspareunia is just like a fancy term for pain with sex. Um, and within that, you could have something called vaginismus, which is also pain with sex, but it's just a different presentation. Usually people with vaginismus, um, they have difficulty with penetration. So that mm-hmm. could be anything from a finger, dildo, tampon, speculum, penis, mm-hmm. what have you. Right. Um, and then there's something called vulvodynia, which is also another fancy word. That just literally means pain in the vulva. So that, again, could be pain with penetration, but it right. could also be pain with tight clothing or pain with sitting. Um, and there, and within that, there's different along categories and different ways they um, classify vulvodynia, which would be a very long um, talk that we don't need to go into. But then there's things like painful bladder syndrome or in- interstitial cystitis that might present more like bladder pain, mm-hmm. as the name says, painful bladder syndrome. Right. Um, but p- those patients can also have pain with sex. You can have things like endometriosis, which usually is typically associated um, with painful periods, but those patients may just have pain with sex. They may have more bowel dysfunction. They may also have urinary dysfunction. They may have all of the above. Um, so there's a lot of different kind of diagnoses that can be associated with pain with sex. Mm-hmm. But typically what I always tell patients is it's usually not very like cut and dry. You usually don't have like one, it's not so like X, Y, Z. It's not so linear. Usually there's, it's multifactorial. So usually there's a bunch of things that might be contributing Mm -hmm. to someone's presentation. Could be, there could be hormonal things. There could be an infection or an inflammatory process going on. Mm -hmm. There could be a dietary component. Um, But most often, most patients present with some level of pelvic floor dysfunction. So some sort of myofascial Um, or musculoskeletal dysfunction that's causing some of their symptoms. Wow. Pain during sex, for one reason or another, is happening way more often for people than we think. While there aren't enough stats regarding people with penises or trans people, we read that according to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, nearly 75% of women or people with vaginas will experience pain during sex at some point in their lives. Sometimes this pain will be a one-time thing. Other times, it will be more persistent. Most people don't talk about the pain because they think it's normal, but we're here to tell you that it's not. Could you talk a little bit more about endometriosis? I feel like that's like kind of becoming a hot topic in the Mm -hmm. media. Like Lena Dunham had endometriosis Mm -hmm. and then I think she just got a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. So like people were like, you know, people like shit on Lena Dunham all Uh the time. And it's just like, maybe just like let her live her life um, and like let her make her own decisions. But um, I feel like this is becoming a really like hot button issue. Mm -hmm. Um, You kind of briefly discussed it. I'm wondering like, is it common? What does it mean? Like, mm-hmm. how do people get rid of it? And like, how many people have it or struggle with it? So what it is, is so naturally inside the uterus, we have endometrial tissue. And every month, our hormones change, we shed the this like layer of endometrial tissue. 
But with people who have endometriosis, that endometrial tissue is now growing outside of the uterus. Um, but it's still going to be controlled by these hormonal fluctuations. So what happens is your hormones change, but that tissue has nowhere to go, right? Um, and it will continue to grow, and that tissue will then cause things to kind of stick together and cause what we call adhesions. And it can grow anywhere. Like they found endometriosis in the brain and the heart. Oh they my found God. it in men. So it can be anywhere. But typically, most women have it in their pelvis. Um, usually, like some people, it grows into the bladder. Sometimes it grows into the colon, and it can cause a lot of different. Uh, different symptom presentations, which is why it's really hard to diagnose because it presents itself as these other diagnoses. Right. So a lot of times women might have bowel dysfunction, so they'll get diagnosed with IBS. A lot of women present with bladder syndrome or painful bladder syndrome, so they'll be diagnosed with that. Is there um, a way to do like an x-ray? No. So that's the other reason it's really hard to oh. diagnose because there is no diagnostic testing right now. That, so that's why it takes roughly like 11 to 12 years for a woman to be diagnosed. What? That yeah. is absurd. Yeah. Yeah. So because right now, I mean, MRI technology is getting a little bit better, but really the only way to truly diagnose a woman with endometriosis is to do laparoscopic surgery and then they remove that tissue nope, and nope, then nope, do nope. and then <laughs> no, thanks. and then you have to have a positive um, finding in like... Um, Looking at the tissue you took, it will show like endometrial cells. Um, and a lot of surgeons, you know, aren't getting enough training in how to perform that surgery, how to identify mm -hmm. the endometriosis, um, because a lot of them are looking for what is like very, very apparent endometriosis, like these giant chocolate cysts is basically right. what people talk about. But it can look, we had a surgeon give an in-service recently, and she was showing pictures of endometriosis and like... Obviously, I'm not a surgeon, but she was like, yeah, right here, you see all this. I'm like, I don't see anything. Right. And so it's not something that can be that apparent. Um, and so it, it's definitely, so yeah, you have to have, essentially have to have a surgery right now. So obviously, a lot of people aren't going to want to do that. Um, a lot of people might not have access to a surgeon. And also with our current healthcare as it is, a lot of people probably can't afford oh, for sure. to get that. So, you know, there's other things you can do. There's different treatments, usually involving different like ways they manage hormones. And there's a lot of controversy around how effective those are, how safe they are, because there are a lot of side effects. A lot of them put people into basically early menopause, which oh, wow. is a big problem. Um, so yeah, so that's why there's a lot surrounding that. And I mean, I think the reason there's all this controversy with Lena Dunham is because she had a hysterectomy. Right. And that's really not the best treatment for endometriosis oh. because your endometriosis, the problem is, is the tissue is growing outside of the uterus. So if you remove the uterus, you still have all this tissue right. outside of the uterus. Sure. So you're not really like removing the problem. Unless she had like other uterine Yeah, problems. if she had something called adenomyosis, which is a different um, disease, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, yeah, like that would make sense. And, I'm and like, what's that? What's adenomyosis? Um, I'm learning so much. <laughs> so many it's, definitions. It's something similar, but instead it's like within the uterus. Got it. Um, so so that, potentially it could have been that, but maybe it could still be endometriosis yeah. and she still could have just like taken out her uterus and mm -hmm. people are, are maybe like doctors and the medical community commenting mm -hmm. like that's not the right decision. Yeah. Or. I mean, it's really hard to say, obviously, like 
I don't know what her background is. I don't know what happened, but I think that's where some of the controversy is coming from. Right. And since she is so much in the public eye, people are concerned that then all Other these women are, are going to be like, that. oh, I should get a hysterectomy and that will solve the problem. Interesting. But really, that should be like last resort. Right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I feel like I only started learning about endometriosis really recently. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like it's like, it's similar to like, if you don't experience things, if you don't experience like a breakup, you can't really understand what the breakup feels like. Yeah. And I feel like it's like the same thing with bodily functions. Mm -hmm. If you're not going through that, it's yeah. hard to relate or um, people aren't really talking about it as much. Yeah, yeah, there's a really good documentary that came out a couple years ago called Endo What? And it's like <laughs> a lot about endometriosis and the treatment and all these different things. Um, and I believe they're releasing like a second, like a sequel. Oh, great. Coming up. Um, but it's pretty, it's like if someone really wants to learn about endometriosis, that, Endo that would be a good film. Mm -hmm. Great. There's so much stigma about pain during sex specifically mm -hmm. um, or just genital pain in general. And I feel like, you know, that's obviously part of our overall culture of just mm -hmm. stigmatizing sex and pleasure education in general. But like, especially with pain, I feel like that's like such a necessary thing to talk about because mm -hmm. like if roughly 60% of women and 10% of men or more are experiencing this, like this should probably be like in, you know, our school education system. It's just as important as math. It's just as important as science and like all these other subjects. Um, like how do we reduce the stigma um, with this topic? Yeah, I mean, that's a big, <laughs> big question. Because yeah. um, a lot of it is, like you said, lack of education. So, you know, we need to get it into schools and not just like, grade schools, high schools, but also in medical schools. Yes. Um, because when you are having providers learn how to talk about it, then they're going to ask the appropriate questions. And that's going to lead to more conversations between a provider and the patient. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's kind of like one of the big components, because right now no one's really asking those questions. Or I shouldn't say no one, but a lot of people aren't asking those questions. Right. And if we're not asking questions, we're not having a conversation. And so... I think that's a big piece of it is just like lack of education across the board, not just in schools, well, right? not just in like the schools. When we say school, like elementary school, high school, like medical providers aren't really getting this. Um, so how do we go about having that happen? I'm not sure. I mean, that's fair. Again, like it's hard. Yeah. Again, with how things are in the country right now, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's just, it's really kind of a scary time. Yeah, um, it's not good. So I think having people who are advocating and, you know, getting their voice out there and um, being activists for mm -hmm. these kinds of topics is really important. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I personally talk about it so much because I'm like, how else are we going to get right. people talking about and thinking about it? Because um, it's pretty easy to kind of like, you know, push aside because it's already a taboo topic. Mm -hmm. Um. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to have to happen. I think it's just going to need to be more and more people being loud. Yeah. And also getting better education kind of at the level of providers and educators. Because when teachers know what to say and talk about, they can talk about it in their classroom. And right now, I don't think we have the resources for that. And we should. Yeah. God, it would be my fucking dream to just have like sex ed health, ed like health education, 
mental health education classes, like communication classes, like mm-hmm. in every single school. Like yeah. it just makes people better people. Yeah. And like more happy and successful people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I feel like that would include pain and dysfunction. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Are there any like common myths that you want to debunk about pain during sex or just dysfunction in general that maybe our listeners like know to be a fact until PT Rachel Gelman comes in and busts it for them? I really like how you just said that. (laughs) I feel like I should be wearing a cape. Um, Yeah. Oh, man. There's a lot. I mean, I could probably do like a long, long series on all the (laughs) myths and things that make me kind of angry or that grind my gears. But um, I mean, the first one. I guess is just people are like, oh, that's normal. Like this thing, this is normal. And like, I'm like, no, it's not normal. It's common. Mm -hmm. And that's probably like my mantra I say on a daily basis is it's not normal. It's common. Um, That's probably a big one. And that they're, that it's all in your head. That's another one. Mm. And I'm like, "Mm, no, like there definitely can be this um, kind of mindfulness component that we have to talk about or anxiety and stress can impact these symptoms and lead to people having more pain or um, sexual dysfunction because the mind controls everything. So you always have to look at that. But, you know, people get this idea like, I think I'm crazy. Like sometimes patients come in, they're like, I feel like I'm going crazy. Like no one can find anything wrong with me. I think this is all in my head. And I'm like, well, no. Right. Your feelings are your feelings. Yeah. So I think that's another one. And I think another one that I always hear when I talk about my job or is people are like, oh, so I should just do Kegels. And that's like a huge myth is people are like, Kegels are the answer to everything. Kegels are going to cure my life. And Kegels have their place. And for people who don't know what Kegels are, it's just a pelvic floor contraction. And they definitely can be beneficial. um, But there's this misconception. People are like, oh, you can do Kegels all the time. I'm doing mine right now. I do mine when I drive the car. And I'm like, Kegels are really hard to do. Like, First of all, like I can't even do a Kegel. I'll be very honest. They're very difficult for me. I have to like really focus and yeah. So I'm like the fact that people might think they're doing a Kegel while they're driving their car, they most likely aren't. (laughs) Yeah. They're probably squeezing their butt or holding their breath. Um, And I'd say majority of people, especially people who have pain, those muscles are already pretty restricted or tight or hypertonic. Um, So a Kegel is probably going to make things potentially worse because you're trying to contract um so usually most people need to work on relaxing their pelvic floor and that's why i'm like i don't want to say kegels are wrong but most people focus on the contraction and then forget that you need to relax Mm. that there needs to be both of those movements just like if you were to go to the gym and you wanted to strengthen your arm you wouldn't just pick up a dumbbell do a bicep curl and then just like that's it yeah you'd put it down and then you'd stretch so people seem to forget that piece when it comes to Kegels. They're like, you just need to focus on tightening. You need to focus on stopping the flow of urine and just stay like that and make your vagina as tight as possible. And I'm like, hmm, you need to kind of let it relax because these muscles are already doing a lot of work. They're mm. supporting your pelvic organs. And so that's a lot of weight right. for these little muscles to be like supporting all day. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to strengthen them, contract them even more. Like, they need a little break. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the other big myth. Right. And I see so many articles still that are like, you know what you need to do to make your life better? Kegels. And I'm like, hmm. (laughs) I'm like, maybe just drink some water. And like you said, like, have (laughs) some chocolate. Yeah. And just like, yeah, go for a walk. Like, I can think of so many other things that might make someone feel better. Mm -hmm. 
than doing Kegels. Um, so that's why I'm like, I don't want people to, you know, be obsessed. They're like, Kegels changed my life. I'm like, yeah, they can definitely sure. help. Yeah. But, you know, they may not be the answer for someone, especially a patient that has pain. So what are some common con- pain conditions that that you would classify that you see? Um, maybe not daily, but like, may- or maybe if there are daily things that you see like that, what are they? Well, I do see people that have pelvic pain. So usually pelvic pain is something that we think of as some kind of overall syndrome. Like since I'm looking at it from the point of view of women's health practitioner, anything that's in the reproductive area that could give pain to somebody at different times of their cycle, at different parts of the month, different activities that they're doing, anything can cause them pain. So if people come in saying, I've had this history of pelvic pain, I need to narrow it down as to where it's coming from. If you listen to season one, you know who this is. This is Dr. Rebecca Levy-Gant, my incredibly brilliant and talented mom. Dr. Levy-Gan has been a practicing OBGYN for over 20 years, and she has her own practice in Napa, California. She now pretty much specializes in the 40-plus crowd, which includes PMS, perimenopause, hormones, sexuality later in life, and menopausal issues. Sometimes it's pain with intercourse. Sometimes it's pain that's been there for a very long time, and we have to unravel all the things that are happening to create this sensation that someone's complaining of, calling it pelvic pain. So transitioning to menopause, can you explain, because I feel like I, first of all, I feel like people don't really understand what it is until it's actually happening to them because number one, we don't learn about it in school. Number two, like the body of research around it, I feel like is, I don't know, probably large, um, but isn't being, I feel like distributed to people Like you have to really search and really ask your doctor certain questions. Whereas in school, when, when you're in fifth grade, you get this talk about you're going to get your period and here is how to deal with that. But there's never a talk about you're going to also stop your period and here are the symptoms that go along with that. So can you give us a lesson on what, what happens to the body when someone with a uterus goes through menopause and what comes along with that? Yeah. First I can actually say that you're 100% right that the information doesn't seem to be well disseminated. Because I would say I spend probably half of everyone's visit who comes to see me educating, which is a great thing. I think that's a great part of what I do. But it, it always has amazed me how much I have to educate people about their own bodies, even as they're in their 40s and 50s and older, um, educate people about what the myths are that are out there that are really untrue kind of internet things that what they may have What are some heard. myths? Tell us some myths. Oh my goodness. I mean, well, probably the biggest one is that people expect that menopause is this big decline. Like people don't realize that nowadays, I mean, first of all, long ago, women got their period, got pregnant, had the babies, and died shortly afterwards because people weren't living past maybe 40 or something years old a long time ago. And now, I mean, 
the life expectancy of a healthy woman who doesn't have cancer and doesn't have major chronic illnesses in the United States is upper 80s. So if someone goes into menopause, average age of menopause in this country is about 51. So if you're around 50 when you go into menopause and you're going to live till at least 80 something, you're talking about a third of your life, 30 years or more Mm -hmm. in menopause. So people somehow accept that it's, I'm going to feel worse. I'm not going to be interested in sex. I'm not going to have a good relationship with my husband. I'm going to have less energy. I'm going to gain weight. I won't exercise. People think that, oh, that's all comes with aging and menopause. And really that's not true. I mean, you can't do anything about the aging part of it. Your body's going to age, Mm -hmm. but you can do so much about the other things. Everything that I've just mentioned, staying energetic, staying healthy, staying young, staying interested in your relationship, having sex till a ripe old age, being interested in that. Be, having the the reproductive parts who are na- that are now not there for reproduction but maybe are just there for pleasure still be vital and healthy is something that i spend a lot of time convincing people is is really the reality and how it should be and after i speak to people about it a lot i get a lot of kind of the light bulb going off over people's heads as to why did i think it was all going to be bad why can't it be good So what does this mean? It means that your grandparents are probably still getting it on. Sorry to paint that picture for you, but it's true. According to the National Survey of Family Growth, three out of every four men and about one out of every two women ages 57 to 72 are still having sex once a week. And according to Psychology Today, among those aged 75 and older, 46% of men and 41% of women are still sexually active. Get it, grandma and grandpa? Can you now go into what happens in your body? What What's the reaction where you start to go through menopause? Okay. So menopause in general, if you're going to look at a definition, the definition of being in menopause is truly 12 complete months with no period anymore. And that could be at any time, but the general age is around 50 or 51. could be a few years before, a few years after. It could happen much earlier if something else happens, like if you were to have your ovaries removed at an early age, or if you had cancer that had chemotherapy that that destroyed your ovarian function, it could happen earlier. But in general, around age 50 or 51, when women go through a period of time where their ovarian function starts to decline and then ultimately stops. So the function of the ovaries are really to make hormones, estrogen and progesterone, and also to to provide you with ovulation when you're in your young reproductive years. So all of that stops. It stops on a rolling basis, probably through people's 40s. So the ovaries are functioning less and less, and then at some point, not at all. So when your ovaries are no longer functioning, you don't make any more estrogen and progesterone from your ovaries, and then you start to experience, for most women, the symptoms of not having enough hormones, estrogen and progesterone mostly in their system, which usually leads to things like, and there's a laundry list, and most people are very familiar because when I treat a menopausal woman and we start to talk about it, I bring out a little symptom chart and go, okay, let's talk about which of the things on this list you're starting to experience. And we go through this little checkbox and the checkboxes are hot flashes. So a feeling of heat, like you can't regulate your own heat during the day. Just like extra sweating all the time? Like you're totally okay one minute and then another minute, there's this feeling of- Like a wave. A wave of heat comes over you. Oh God, You start sweating. Okay, that happens. People wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. So the hot flashes, it's insomnia, trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, irritability. 
mood swings, depression. Now, I'm not saying that for suddenly someone's in menopause and they're depressed, but it's a constellation of things. So if they were maybe trending towards depression a little bit before, estrogen was helping them to maybe go all the way there and then their estrogen is gone and then they don't feel so well mentally. Um, bladder symptoms. People start to leak urine sometimes. People have irritative bladder. They go more frequently. They have low energy, low sex drive. Um, just, this is just the laundry list of things. They start to gain weight. It's absolutely true. You go into menopause when you don't have any more estrogen, your resting metabolism is slower. Some people are very lucky and they don't have all of these symptoms or they have them very mildly. But many women, I mean, I see a skewed version because the people that come to me are usually coming for help, but many women have all those symptoms for a while. And, and you're talking about myths before about what people think about menopause. A lot of people think it's better if I just tough it out. I'm, I'm going to have all these symptoms. My mom never took anything. I'm not going to take anything. And then they're miserable, not realizing because the education is not out there that those hormones, if you have hormones your entire life and then it's 50 or 52 or such, you don't have them anymore. You are in some kind of hormonal, your body is going into this hormonal lack. So all the things that those hormones were doing for you before, cognitive function, helping your bones stay strong, keeping you able to regulate your, your heat and cold tolerances. Like a different you. Yeah, exactly. And people feel like now I'm in a brain fog. Now I, I have these problems with the flashes. But for some reason, education-wise, they think that this is just the way it is. Right. And I'm here to tell them it's not. It so let's go into that. that so how? So say someone comes into your practice and they're like, "I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z symptoms. I'm miserable. Like I didn't realize it was going to be like this." What's your like step one, two, and three of how they can get back to normal? Well, first, of course, as in everybody that I see in the office, I take a very good history because you need to know who who are candidates for which kinds of treatments. And there are some people who cannot use, let's say, hormonal treatment. So if someone has had certain types of breast cancer, or if they've had certain types of uterine cancer, or if they've had certain blood clots, but again, it has to be very personalized as to what happened to them, when did it happen, what type of cancer did they have, what type of illness did they have. In that small group, they're not really candidates to use hormones, but it doesn't mean they can't use other things. They can. So in taking a history, I have to rule out all the people that can or cannot use certain types of treatments. But if they're good candidates for it, they have to be around the time of menopause. So within about five or six years of losing their periods, because that's the safest time to start any kind of hormonal program. They have to be uh, you know, not suffering from one of those other conditions that I said, cancers and things like that. And there's a few other conditions as well. Um, they have to not have had... Um, symptoms or reactions to, let's say in their earlier life, they had been put on something that has estrogen in it, like a birth control pill mm. or a patch or something like that. No bad history of reactions. Um, oh God. Does that mean that if when I go through menopause, like I wouldn't be able to, because I've had really bad reactions to birth control? It's not the same because if you've had reactions like it caused acne or you know something like that, of course, if you've had bad migraines, like certain types of migraines with an aura where you have visual changes um, or lights flashing, you also might not be a candidate gotcha. for it. Or if, you, let's say, you went into menopause a few years ago, now you're 53, let's say you had a few years of no bleeding and now you're bleeding, of course, we need to evaluate why you're, why you're now bleeding at a time you shouldn't be before considering some kind of hormone to put you on. Okay. But most women, when we eliminate the people that are not candidates, 
most women are candidates to use some type of safe hormone replacement. Okay. And it takes somebody who really knows what they're doing with that to put somebody on a safe program because before when you were talking about what are the big myths, the other big myth that I probably hear at least three or four times every day is that I heard that hormones cause cancer because there have been a lot, there's a lot of controversy because there were older studies that had come out testing certain kind of hormones on certain populations of women and they found things like that. But that does not extrapolate to all the types of hormones in all the types of women. You have to look at the what they call the post-study data to really look at that stuff and know what you're talking about in order to convince people that that's not the case. Mm. So that's the other myth that I end up dispelling a lot. But let's say somebody meets all the criteria, they're shortly after their menopause, they're very symptomatic, they should be on a safe hormonal program. And for most of my patients, getting it to the right dose and getting them to a dose that helps their symptoms is really getting them back to where they want to be. And now one of the other big symptoms, of course, that you were talking about before is the the vaginal issues. Yes. So one of the other things that we see a lot in women who are without estrogen for any period of time is they do start to experience these genitourinary symptoms of menopause where they have vaginal dryness and painful intercourse and itching and burning and bladder problems. And that's a whole other entity unto itself. And while it's lovely that we know that the duration of these other symptoms like hot flashes actually have an endpoint. Like let's say you never went on anything and you just wanted to wait it out. There is an endpoint. Most people after a few years actually don't have a which lot of those symptoms anymore, which is miserable. Which fine. Right. Why would you want to still go years, which could be up to maybe eight or nine years? What? No. Why would you want to do that without help? But some people do. But the vaginal symptoms never go away. That's, unless no. Unless you treat them. Right. Which is why people come to me. There's definitely a lot of things that you can do to evaluate the situation and have women go on an entire program of, again, I like to use lists. So I'll take out a list and here's all the things that we can use from things that are temporary, like lubricants. If you just get the right lubricant, that might help. To vaginal moisturizers, which are things that women can use in the vagina that actually last a couple of days. To hormones, estrogens, and there's something called DHEA, which is an adrenal hormone that's actually FDA approved for vaginal moisture. And there's actually oral oral medications. That you, can you can take, take a pill? You can take an oral pill and it can affect your vaginal receptors. Awesome. So there's so many things. And there's And you know, the, the other thing, if nobody, if somebody doesn't want to use anything in their vagina, there's even treatments that we can do to the vaginal tissue like laser treatments and there's radiofrequency treatments and different things. But again, they're all part of this list of things where Someone comes in, you do the evaluation, you do the history, do an exam, talk to them about what their desires are and put them on some kind of program to actually reach that goal. And what about foods? What kind of foods you eat? Like if you're more healthy and eat more vegetables, does that translate to a better menopause experience? There's a lot of studies that have come out recently about what type of diet a menopausal woman should best follow. And the conclusions really are that they should be on diets where they don't eliminate any particular food group from their diet, Um, no fad diets, no like extreme diets, no extreme caloric restricting, but high healthy proteins, so like fish, um, lean chicken, 
and from uh, lentils or beans, it should be a high part of that diet. It should definitely include include grains, but it should always be whole grains so that um, they're not having, let's say, processed foods, which break down more into more simple sugars, definitely. Um, low alcohol, because there are lots of studies out now that show that more than one drink a day in women actually increases breast cancer risk. So, what the fuck? What do you mean? <laughs> those are Those are there. You know, those studies are actually the, the most recent things. I mean, you know me, I just I just came back from a three-day conference, and these are the latest evidence studies with that they show. That's fucked up. Well, what about in men, if men do that? Two, two drinks a day. That's <laughs> bullshit. I'm going to protest. Well, men are generally bigger than women, and that, and that has to do with, you know, how they metabolize their alcohol. Stupid. But, you know, alcohol pretty much is a lot of sugar. True. And sugar True. in general, as it Alcohol's, breaks down. It's known that alcohol yes. is not very good for you, but yeah. that's, that's not great for yeah. the weekend I had. Um, okay. Let's transition a little bit. What is the Mona Lisa and how does it work and what are the results? Okay. So the Mona Lisa Touch is a, um, an office procedure that uses a what we call a fractionated CO2 laser. So laser is a type of light treatment that um, it's, this particular laser is designed to treat vaginal tissue. So it's made for women who have exactly these symptoms like vaginal dryness, painful intercourse, itching, burning, bladder symptoms, loss of elasticity. The way it works is that there are office treatments that are done over a period of time, usually in the office, three office treatments, about six weeks apart. So 18 weeks worth of three treatments. And it's a laser. I know it sounds painful. A laser that goes inside and outside of the vaginal area where the laser actually treats the undersurface underneath the vaginal tissues to make it healthier by bringing more blood flow, more collagen, more elastin, more fibroblasts. It makes new tissue. So if you imagine people who get laser on their skin, um, it's not burning anything. It's not a burning laser. It goes underneath the surface and it treats the undersurface to make the superficial area more plump and healthy, more blood flow and less painful, more, better elasticity. I brought it into my practice as an adjunct. It's not a, by any means the only thing I do when people come in for these type of problems, but it's one of the things on my list of things that I offer to people so that in conjunction with the right lubricant or the light, right lotions or the right hormones, doing something to more long-term treat the vaginal tissue has been a really good um, addition for my practice as far as uh, what people say have ha has happened to their comfort levels and their relationship after we are, are through doing these treatments. So, And how long does it take, the actual procedure? Um, each treatment probably takes under 15 minutes. How many are there? And there are three treatments about six weeks apart, and then one annually. So it's like what we call kind of a refresher. Like a checkup? Like a, yeah. How's your vagina doing? <laughs> Come check it up at the Mona Lisa Touch. Exactly. So um, they're finding, what I'm finding in my practice is that at about the nine or 10 month mark after we've done the three treatments, people are starting to call up and say, hey, I'm starting to feel a little bit of those symptoms back again, but just a little bit. So I have them come in shortly thereafter and do a one treatment. So it, it'll be a one annual treatment from there on. And they ask, you know, how long do I have to keep up with those treatments? And I go, well, how long do you want to use your vagina? <laughs> I mean, is it like, ex it's money every treatment, I'm assuming? Um, at this moment, that particular treatment is not covered by insurance, which is 
one of the reasons that it's not something that I would say to people that this is the only thing that you can do. Because not everyone can afford it. Right. And it's, I think it's terrible that things like this are not covered because this is a real medical condition. This is not a, it's not cosmetic. It's not something that people just would choose for the aesthetic of having a, a better vagina because I'm not doing it for that reason. This is a true uh, medical condition with a diagnosable, you know, coding and everything. But for right now, it's just not a covered expense. So it's not the thing that I tell people, you know, let me sell you on this. I'm not trying to sell them anything. It's an adjunct to all the other things I do in the office because I really think there's a multitude of things that can make people better. Right. And that's just one of them. Yeah. Is there anything else that, anything that we didn't talk about that you want to say? Um, I don't know. I think we pretty much hit it. I, it. A lot of it has to do, but a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that it's not just one thing. It's not like if somebody comes into me and says, you know, I'm not having sex because it hurts. It's very much up to me to, to um, dissect out the problem uh, by my exam, by my history, by my discussion with the patient. It's as like a puzzle. To, it really is. And nobody ever leaves the office with, here's the one thing I want you to do. Go yeah. do this exercise and you'll right. be better. It's usually... Well, this is important. It's usually not just the physical part of it, but let's say someone comes in. I mean, I would say in the last, just in the last day, just today, I've had at least two people that came in with exactly this picture that they have this complaint. Uh, it's painful to have intercourse. So we're pretty much not doing it. And my husband's very unhappy and I don't know what to do about it. And then I go to examine them. It's not, the physical part of it is definitely part of it. You know, they have these problems with the atrophy or the thinning mucosa and everything. But a big part of it actually happens from the neck up because, and I'm not saying it's a psychological problem, but it's the aut automatic reaction that someone has when in their head they've already convinced themselves through multiple experiences that it's going to hurt. So someone comes close enough to them and something happens automatically. It's a reflex. They tighten all their muscles. They are doing things in an effort to keep that sex from happening because their body says it's going to hurt. And who would, you know, willingly do something that they know is going to cause them pain? They wouldn't welcome it into their it's body. It's like a fight or it's, flight response. And it's a it's a, a fear and a reflex reaction to penetration. Mm. That's really how you have to put it. And, and it. and it sounds kind of silly, but one of the things I talk to women about, and it's funny to see these 60, 70 or older year Discover old women- Discover your dis clitoris. Discussing <laughs> this with me where I tell them, we're going to get your vagina used to traffic. That's what I tell them. <laughs> and they go, what? And I go, we have we're gonna to We're going to put a your, truck in there. <laughs> we have, we're going to put things in there for sure. But we're going to have to get you used to the touching, the thrusting, the moving, the, 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 the traffic that has to happen and happen in a pain-free way that I'm going to teach you how is going to happen. You do it order, little by uh, little. That's right. In order for your brain to stop saying, keep out. And that happens only over time. And I've had all kinds of reaction from people that had not been having sex when we get to a breakthrough where we're actually at a place where either, yes, they've discovered that they can have an orgasm or they've discovered that they can actually pleasure themselves or they've discovered that, Who yes, funk it? their husband now can comfortably have not only the conversation about it, but through various techniques that we talk about and I show them 
can do, can achieve what they really thought was unachievable. And, yeah. you know, people have, I have had people break down and cry in the middle of me treating them. I've had people send me- Of tears let, of joy. Yes, of like, I can't, no, first, some of it is- Some of it's Some pain. of it is, is PTSD of like, right, right, why right. was it so traumatic in the first place? And remembering things about why, mm. what made it that way in the first place, that's a whole other thing. Right. But also of- I can't believe that we've gotten to this point. I right. never thought I'd get here again. And that's the and tears of joy part. Absolutely. And you know, for me, like I said, the very beginning, it was mostly about delivering the babies. And I like to do that. But I never knew the extreme satisfaction, haha, pun intended, <laughs> that could come, pun intended, from, <laughs> from um, getting having women get to a point where now they can take care of all that themselves and back in their relationship. Sex Ed with DB is brought to you by O-School, a place to unlearn shame, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex-positive folks through daily live streams. Forget Sex Ed, our hashtag SexyEd is far more satisfying. Go to www.o.school to learn more. Our creator, host, and producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our content editor is Katherine Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Carissa Diaz. Our audio engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our social media lead is Lisa Fireman. And our fundraising coordinator is Carly Yoshida. Music by Joaquin Karud and the artist Buddha. Thank you to our featured voices and our listeners. Tune in next time.